Welcome to Happiness 2.02 podcast. I'm your host, John Tuckums, founder, author, World Government Summit participant, and Forbes featured TEDx speaker, an inquisitive human who loves root knowledge. Happiness 2.02 is a mental health show for entrepreneurs that provides the full human cognition and the full breathing oxygen tools to rapidly shift states of mind and increase energy. Podcast guests include organization founders, world-renowned executives, MDs, PhDs, and remarkable leaders who have incredible stories and are helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen. You're listening to Happiness 2.02. This is your host, John Tuckums. You're listening to episode 26 with Dr. Belisa Branich. Belisa is a renowned clinical psychologist, a keynote speaker, and is the best-selling author of Breathing for Warriors. While you're listening to this podcast, if anything stands out to you as thought-provoking or remarkable, take a screenshot and write down what you've heard from Belisa. Post the insight on social media, text the idea to a friend, or email what you've learned to a family member. Get this information out there. Without further ado, episode 26 of Happiness 2.02 podcast with Dr. Belisa Branich. Belisa, time is a finite resource. Underline everything you do across your life, your leadership, your books, your speaking engagements. Why do you do what you do? Ultimately, what drives you at your core? So John, I'm a psychologist and what drives me is to be able to show people that they can get better or they can change. Because we have so many folks who really believe that they're stuck and that hope is not something that they have access to. So showing them their potential, that they can get out of whatever they're at if they're, if they're not at the place they want to be, and that they have an ability to perform and thrive and just experience joy in a way they possibly never have before is what drives me. Fantastic. And can you share with the audience too some of the, the challenges or adversity that you faced early on and maybe you know, tying it into breathing too as well that really helped you to really pursue you know, psychology and also a greater look in terms of kind of the whole, whole body system to help people to get better and change? Sure. Well, I think it starts with birth order where you are in your family, when you, when you were born, what sibling you mm. are, I think is very important. I um, am the oldest sister. Um, I have a little brother. And um, I think that that really made an impact on who I was or who I am. Um, so I am an older sister in every situation. So taking care of is tremendously important to me. I had a little brother who actually didn't speak until very late. And part of it was that he had, you know, a very attentive older sister who just let people know what he wanted. So I tend to do that taking care of, um, that, that nurturing part of me is something that I do with my friends, with my patients, and, and with people around me is that I really do enjoy taking care of and supporting people to, to get to the next level. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it sounds like, uh, you know, you played a, a prominent role that's, uh, you know, as part of the kind of uh, parenting relationship uh, that uh, you're offering kind of guidance to siblings. Uh, can you share with the audience too, as well, just kind of, um, you know, kind of your influences in terms of mentorship, might be parents or other people that, uh, um, you know, early on in your life? Sure. Well, I come up from a family of, of academics. Um, yeah. uh Everyone in my family for, for four generations has been a professor of some sort. Wow. In fact, my grandmother on my father's side started 
they were in a um, displaced person, a DP camp in Italy during mm. World War II. And when they got there, my my grandmother realized that all these kids were not doing anything. They weren't studying. They weren't going to school. And time was passing. So she actually started a school in an Italian DP camp for the children that were there. So I come from a very strong lineage of people that that want to serve as far as teaching in any situation. That's incredible. And do you remember kind of the earliest uh, uh, moments in time that uh, you really kind of got that teaching, that uh, kind of bug, so to speak? Because uh, I think a lot of the work that you do today was uh, is focused towards uh, transferring knowledge and remarkable knowledge. Uh, do you remember the earliest times where you really had that curiosity related to uh, how can I you know, transfer knowledge that you've acquired uh, to, you know, to an audience. And it might've been in elementary school or high school that you really started kind of testing the waters. Well, it's interesting because I don't know if I'm transferring knowledge. Hmm. I think I'm smart. I don't think I'm that smart that I have that much knowledge to transfer. It's really that I really like supporting people to encourage them something they already know or they have lost access to. And that's really what the breath is, that I'm not, you know, there is no novel method in breathing. There is no novel system. If you go back long enough, you're going to find someone, even if it's an ancient culture, who is teaching something you are teaching now. So my impetus really came from that volunteerism was something that was very important in my family and that we did very naturally. So as long as I can remember, my mom would volunteer. We would do things just as part of our lives, volunteering. So she taught English as a second language to people that were learning English that, that were here. Um, we did, you know, food drives. It was just a natural part of what we did growing up is that when you didn't want something, you repackaged it and you dropped it off at the Salvation Army. You, you know, didn't throw things out and you helped whenever you could. And it was a very natural thing for me. And as I grew up, I realized that you know, it's not natural for a lot of people. If you don't integrate it into your everyday life, you live thinking, oh, I'm going to volunteer or help someone else when I retire or when I have time. Mm. And I think that it's really important to, you know, especially if you have kids, start that attitude that you are here to serve and to give back every single day in some way and just make it a natural way of, of how you move throughout the world. So the impetus came really from a sense of, of serving and volunteerism. And again, having my parents and, and, and my brother, who's uh, a professor as well as, as teachers. Sure. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing. And as well, can you share uh, with the audience as well, a lot of people that get into psychology or they get into breathing, you know, they had some adversity as well as part of their childhood. Uh, can you touch upon anything that uh, you saw firsthand? I mean, there's a point in time where you had a, a shallower breath that really stoked some curiosity to really to understand uh, the resources that are out there. As you talked about that, uh, a lot of this stuff is, you know, has been done before, but was there a point in time in your personal life that uh, you're like, okay, you know, this has happened to me and I would like to find a better way of doing things. Sure. Um, I had that, you know, come to Jesus moment. And, and Arianna mm. Huffington also talks about this moment when you sort of hit a brick wall. And I still see patients in therapy, not as many anymore. And, and we talk consistently about this moment when you hit the wall. And hit the wall to me means that you make a mistake 
that you normally wouldn't have made and it and it blows your mind because it's a it's a number that's slightly off it's a decimal that's in the wrong place it's mm. a step that you took and you weren't thinking clearly and you fell and you ended up getting very hurt but it's a moment where things go wrong and you have to stop the way you're living and change and even in fact obviously without naming names i'm speaking to a patient yesterday and he said i need change i'm stuck i'm suffocating mm. um i've been successful in what i want to do and i just i want to do something different i don't know what it is but uh i just i'm extreme i'm restless and it's time for a change. I've, I've hit a wall, I'm bored, and I can't breathe. And it's sort of a metaphorical, I can't breathe. But mm. there is a moment where all of us, and for some of us, it's you might be 25 when you hit that wall. You know, it might be an injury or something. And for some of us, it might be 55 or 60. But you're always going to have that moment where you're going to turn your life around and go in a completely different direction. So um, for me, I started having panic attacks. Mm. And New Yorkers run on stress. They glorify stress. So as much as, you know, they'd, you'd like to think as a New Yorker that you manage your stress well, again, you manage it. You're managing your stress. And, you know, we still have this idea in our back of our minds. I think that if someone is sleeping eight hours and if they're taking naps and if they're resting and if they seem, you know, calm and not stressed, they're just not working hard enough. <laughs> so mm. here I am in New York that it really thrives on stress. And I had a panic attack. It wasn't necessarily that anything was going on in my life that was very different from one day to another. And I think that's why panic attacks are so confusing and alarming mm, to us. Yeah. It's because it's not that our life is often, it's not that that point in our lives is particularly stressful or more stressful than others, but it's an accumulation of stress. So I had a panic attack and I had to start looking for another way to to live. And again, I had to reprioritize what was important. Was it my productivity? Was it money? Was it, you know, whatever it was that, of that sort? Or was it my peace of mind? Was it not grinding my teeth? Was it feeling happier? Was it time, having more time? And you know, I started going through what happens with most folks is that you start doing different things to see if you can find a solution. And um, mm -hmm. breathing at that time was one of them, which I had, I, I will admit, I rolled my eyes. So this was, I don't know, about 15, 18 years ago. And I had a friend who, who said, you should try this breathing workshop. And I absolutely rolled my eyes, which is something that I've had people do to me mm. as well when I mentioned breathing. Not anymore, but but yeah, yeah. so I took this breathing workshop and it was fascinating. And all of a sudden there my life changed because I got a little bit obsessed with it. And it really fascinated me, especially since at that time there wasn't sort of the space that I occupy, and I don't occupy a big space in, in the breathwork world, but I do have a niche that's a very practical, mechanical place that integrates psychology as well. So that's where I ended up. To add to that, if I may, is that I ran cross-country in high school. Hmm. So obviously, breathing is very important in cross-country, in, in any running, in any sport. I had a father who would do Kapalabhati and yoga and meditation way before it got popular. So I was used to my dad doing breathing exercises in the living room. And then 
Funny enough, I actually spent a short amount of time working for Jacques Cousteau. And, you know, as you know, as far as breathing apparatus and obviously being underwater, there was information that I was picking up from from that world. So it was really a, a combination of quite a few things. I love that. Thanks for sharing about the Jacques Cousteau. It's such a <laughs> such an interesting element there. What at its core fascinated you about breathing? Uh, it's so dynamic. There's so many aspects of breathing. Uh, what uh, really caught your interest about it? Uh, it sounds like going into that you know that that session when you're rolling your eyes, you're like, okay. <laughs> so you you caught on to some aspect of it in, in that uh, resonated deeply with inside you. You remember what fascinated you about it? Sure. And um, what I have to start with is that as a psychologist and as a child psychologist, I was taught to look at how a child learns. So if a child isn't understanding what you're saying, it's just that the material might be presented in a different way for them to understand. So this is what I would do. And I, I specialized in um, psychometrics, so specifically mm. IQ testing. So that's where I'm coming from. And as I'm learning about the breathing, I'm going to what's natural to me to look at what is happening that people don't understand this or why is this so novel to them. And what fascinated me, and it continues to surprise me, is that people did not understand the diaphragm. So when you ask someone, what is it? How does it move? You know, you own one or, you know, you have one. It's in the very middle of your body. There wasn't a good understanding of this muscle. In fact, you know, if I would talk to someone about their lungs, they would often say, I'd say like, you know, tell me about how you breathe. And they'd say, oh, the lungs, you know, they expand and they contract. And how do they do that? Well, that's, you know, they're a muscle that inhales and exhales. So the the misinformation and the lack of really good understanding of how we breathe was so absent that it was completely surprising to me. And that's sort of what, what led me down this path of why don't we understand breathing well? Why don't people understand that, that their lungs actually don't move at all? It's the muscles around them that power the lungs. Why isn't the diaphragm better understood and, and, and not receiving much more attention? Because it is a, a fascinating muscle that really affects everything above it and everything below it, both your physical health and your, your psychological and mental health. So I started going down the rabbit hole because I was fascinated by our lack of understanding and our lack of attention to something that's that's very important. Yeah, and something so integral to pretty much every aspect of your body from digestion, you know, to breathing to also your psychology as, as you touched upon too as well. And there's so limited understanding and, and people can't even point to where it is in the body to start with. Uh, that's often the case. I'd love to shift gears a little bit and ask you about uh, what experiences in your life get you to pinnacle states, uh, flow states and experiencing flow. Uh, you've had this amazing journey of, uh, of you really, you know, serving, you know, uh, being involved in donations, giving back. And now you found uh, something that incredibly fascinates you and also working with people that uh, are continuing to, to expand your knowledge or even the way you think about breathing. But what are some of the things that you do to get you to pinnacle states and flow states and experiencing flow? You know, I experience flow when I'm working with another person. Mm. So for instance, when I'm with a patient or a client and they get it, 
So, you know, Annie Sullivan, who was Helen Keller's caretaker, had a moment when she had Helen Keller's hands in the water and she was signing water to her on her palm. And she had been doing this over and over and over with all different objects all day long. And there was a moment when Helen Keller understood that when Annie Sullivan was trying to teach her, and remember with Helen Keller, she she couldn't hear, she couldn't see, yep. is that she realized that Annie was teaching her that the sign that she was doing on her hand was the water. Mm. And that was fantastic. And I actually, you know, I'm such a dork because I get, uh, you know, I, I get all excited about it and I get goosebumps. But that moment where she understood was just fantastic. And I think that when I have someone and they understand and you can see that light bulb moment, and sometimes mm. it's something very, very subtle. Because when you talk about someone understanding or overcoming or or just having that light bulb or just, you know, somehow there's some clarity that they haven't had before, it can be very subtle. But as a, you know, a psychologist, as a healer, when they do have that moment, it's just your your heart just opens up and it's it's fantastic because they've moved, they understand, they've healed, they get it. So... I think that's where I'm most in flow, where I've been able to help someone or show someone that moment, and they just completely lighten up and the skies open up, and they mm. get something Something connects for them. And again, I didn't teach them. I just helped them get to that point of something they already knew. So that's sort of my psychological flow state. I think that I also have a physical flow state that's more like the word, you know, the more like the practical word mm. flow. And I'm very interested in sports when you connect the breath to the movement. It's called locomotive pairing. Um, the first time I heard that word, it's not mine, was through um, the teachings of, of Sistema, which is Russian special operations training. Mm -hmm. And they use this word locomotive pairing. Um, and I'm sure it's used in other places. I just want to clarify that it's not mine. And when you connect the breath with a movement, that movement feels like it has more integrity. It's, it's smoother. And that to me is, is really interesting. And I know that there'll be moments, for instance, when I'm rowing on a row machine, that the breath is completely synchronized with the row and it feels fantastic. So that's my physical flow state. Fantastic. That's incredibly beautiful. And how would you, uh, you would describe your awareness. Uh, it sounds like with breathing, it gets incredibly uh, to this beautiful place. And even if you can add a little bit more color as it relates to the breathing in these in these moments, whether it's rowing or doing something else, uh, but also if you could just kind of speak to uh, the expansiveness in terms of your thoughts or you know, where you go in these moments, uh, uh, that'd be fantastic. So I think what happens in these moments, and I think that you can have them in a more subtle way when you're breathing correctly, is that, you know, heart math and, and heart rate variability has, has mm -hmm. really started us going in this direction in that we, um, when you breathe optimally and when things are synchronized is when you actually feel good. You really feel good. So mm -hmm. for instance, to me, when you are taking a breath, it is truly a diaphragmatic breath. And mm. it is filling the densest, most oxygen-rich part of your lungs. 
And that breath is also sort of supporting the heart from either side that is very deep in your lungs and sitting on the diaphragm. And your second brain, which is your gut, is also getting massaged by the diaphragm. Mm -hmm. That All these things are being integrated and now talking to each other, or at least conscious of each other. And I think that is the beauty of it. And the feeling of it is just this feeling of relief and of things being, you know, sometimes you'll, and I'm sure you've had this experience, is you'll have people tear up when they start breathing mm. well. And I think it's that that d- the the heart and the lungs and the gut being all disconnected is, mm. is pretty tragic for our souls, is that it feels like we're not integrated. It feels lonely. You know, it feels, you know, it just doesn't feel good. So when you start breathing well, you have these these moments of relief that all your organs and your muscles are actually working towards the same goal, which is to have you healthy and happy. And that's pretty much my my stumbling description of what it is. Oh, incredible, incredible. And I'd love to touch, uh, you know, upon some of the small things that you do. Uh, it's a perfect segue in terms of uh, healthiness and happiness uh, or well-being in your personal life. So, some are th- some, what are some of the things that you do? You know, life has its ups and downs, uh, as we as we all face on a, on a day-to-day basis. But what are some of the things that uh, you do in terms of like actual tips that you can share with the audience that really help you to start off the day or to to cap off the day, or it might be something during the middle of the day too as well. Well, and this is, I'm sure everybody is saying this lately, but I'm really viciously protective of my sleep. Mm. And I just recently did a really interesting uh, thing where, and I should find, I'll find the name of it for you so you can put it in the show notes. But I had um, a procedure done where they put little zaps of, and again, I'm not a a brain scientist, Mm. but they zapped my brain with little bits of energy. electricity smaller than um, a cell phone Mm -hmm. and it helped my sleep tremendously it was um it's something that's done you know all over the united states It's, it's something that you can try and i thought you know why not let me see if this helps my sleep and um i had it done you don't feel it at all it's hard to believe that actually anything's going on and it's supposed to balance your brain waves and it worked really well. Mm. And I think that continuing to look for things that are going to help with, with sleep, with nutrition, with happiness, with balance, with feeling strong is, is really important. So I, I got out of my comfort zone and I tried this and it, and it, like I said, I will find you some more information on it so you can put it in the show notes, but it really worked for me. So I've been sleeping really well since then. And I've been patting myself on the back for being brave and, and trying for something sure. that I normally would not have. So. I think that's really important. Yeah, you may have had some reservations on the way in, but afterwards you're very pleased with the result. Yeah. And I'd love to, I'd love to talk a little bit more about nutrition because it's something else that you kind of brought up there and uh, kind of pry that open just a little bit more because sure. it sounds like that's something that's near and dear to you as well. Sure. I mean, with nutrition, what's interesting to me is that you are going to have problems with your digestion if you're not breathing well. And most mm. people say, oh, yes, because oxygen and digestion. And no, again, I look at it again. I know that you are a, a respiratory architect. So, and I love, mm. I love that. I love those words that you use. And I also look at the mechanics. And if you are breathing diaphragmatically, 
your diaphragm is going to encourage and support peristalsis. So you're going to be just from a very, very practical, there's no, there's nothing magical here at all, but you're going to be supporting your digestion by breathing diaphragmatically. So, mm. and this, this thought came about because I was working with, again, in New York, I'm not in New York anymore, but I was working with New Yorkers who are very, very concerned with what they eat. So I would have people come in who were just really anal and controlling and and passionate about what they ate, how they ate it, where it came from, so on and so forth. But they would still be very acidic or still have digestive problems. Mm. And what was missing from it all is just the physical massaging of the diaphragm of it massaging their their second brain was missing so as you know you know acid reflux which used to be called heartburn GERD irritable bowel constipation is that if your diaphragm isn't helping your digestive system you're missing you're missing something that's very very important and the the sphincter that helps with acid reflux mm. is is located on your diaphragm. So if you take this part of the machine out, there's going to be problems. So you need to, you know, put it back in and, and help it work and just be surprised by the fact that you may be doing all these things for acid reflux, but if you really weren't breathing diaphragmatically, that might have been the issue. Often is the issue. And it's almost like that core machine, you're missing, you know, the engine's not probably the perfect parallel, but it's you're missing something so core inside your system and make, you have to make sure it's operating to at least a, a current level, a, a certain standard in order to have everything else kind of working in more harmony. And uh, it sounds like uh, really that's the, the diaphragm is such a core area for people to understand and really understanding how to apply, you know, better breathing, you know, diaphragmic breathing uh, into their life. And I'd love to find out a little bit more about the initiatives that you're currently working on. I know that uh, you have a remarkable book, which I read, mm-hmm. uh, Breathing for Warriors. Oh, and uh, I'd love to hear about, uh, you know, some of the initiatives that you're working on. Uh, it might be with clients or other initiatives that you're, you're working on. Sure. Well, um, I'll step back. And one of the things that sort of makes what I do different is that I came from biometric, I mean, I came from psychometrics and now I'm looking at biometrics. So I actually do have a measurement for you to be able to tell if you're breathing well. And one of the reasons we need this is because you can't see air, you can't see your lungs, you can't feel your diaphragm. So we have this notion since we can't feel or see any of those things that the deep breath comes naturally. And we also have this incredibly misguided sort of caricature of a breath that we take that we think is a deep breath, and it's not. Mm. So the biometric, the, the screening tool I use is one that's called the breathing IQ. And it is a screening of abdominothoracic respiratory flexibility that tells you if you're, it shows you if you're using your diaphragm. And then it also is, is related to if you are really taking a deep breath, your, your lung capacity is something that you're maximizing. And this is a test I've been using for about, again, 15 years that has been done since the time of, ironically, the time of tuberculosis, where we would look at thoracic excursion to see if someone was either healing or deteriorating. And it's some, well, something that's still done. 
um, although I'm bringing it back because we need to have a screening tool that is slightly more modern and considers a few other factors of modern life and can let you know without going into a clinic, without you know, having to have a doctor's appointment or insurance, whether you are breathing well. So right mm. now what I'm doing is making sure that everyone has access to the screening and everyone can do it and then understand what's going on and, and, and fix how they're breathing. Whether they speak to me or read my book or not, the breathing IQ is something that's a functional measurement that lets you know what you're doing wrong as you take the test. And it also gives you a grade. And we, we humans, we need baselines. We need grades. We need numbers. So just as you would with, with an IQ score that lets you know about your intelligence, we now have a breathing IQ that lets you mm. know. It's just a screening that lets you know, am I breathing well? Am I really taking a deep breath? That's fantastic. I want to I want to unpack something a little bit. You touched upon it and uh, it stoked my curiosity as it relates to a deep breath. And uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions of what a deep breath is. If you could touch upon that a little bit, uh, you know, that'd be fantastic. Sure. So what we think a deep breath is, is sort of, you know, the superhero's deep breath is you take a deep breath and you puff up the top of your chest and maybe you stretch your arms out to the side. You might look off into the distance and look peaceful. So we assume that that deep breath, that, that, that puffed up chest, that narrow waist, that that is a deep breath. And anatomically, it's not. Anatomically, a deep breath is when the middle of your body expands and then you might go up to the top, but you have to expand the middle of your body. So. What we keep seeing in advertisements, what we keep seeing our parents do as children, what we keep seeing our superheroes do is take this upper body puffed up breath. But in reality, anatomically, a deep breath is one where the middle of your body expands, your spine moves, your, your hips may move into an anterior pelvic tilt, your diaphragm flattens and pushes your ribs open. That is truly a deep breath. So mm. we have to start understanding how our bodies work and that the caricature of a deep breath might feel good and might look good because certainly mm -hmm. a belly breath is not something that's, that's um, that looks good given our, our standards of, of beauty. However, selfie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> or no one's going to take a belly breath for a selfie. However, if you're really wanting to take a deep breath that fills your lungs and encourages you to go into more of a parasympathetic state and helps you calm and helps your back health and your digestion, it's going to be a diaphragmatic breath, which is very different than the one we think is a deep breath. And I'd love to come a little bit full circle here uh, related to sleeping. And can you tie in that too as well as, as people uh, they learn from you, learn from, uh, from your book, they're really you know, going using the, the screen tool, getting a grade, but how does diaphragm, like uh, diaphragmic breathing, how does that help with sleeping? So I love this question. So I appreciate you asking it is that what's happening now is we wake up and we immediately start thinking. And I am, you know, I'm guilty of this as well. And uh, if my alarm is on my phone, which I try not to have it be, is that you will glance at whatever text is on your phone as you turn your alarm off. So as soon as you wake up, you're starting to think. 
And even though it might not feel like a jolt awake, you are jolting your body to start thinking and troubleshooting and, you know, inputting information. So you go the whole day in this mindset of doing things, of multitasking, multitasking, of, you know, negotiating a lot of loud noises, a lot of important information, both that may be about your, your toddler that's on the floor, or it may be about world affairs of what's going on in a very intense world nowadays. And if you're on, you know, 10, you're revving at 10 all day long, and your brain is sort of in a war zone where it's doing all these things in a very intense way, you can't just flip a switch and go to sleep at night because your body is going to think Mm -hmm. that you're still in that war zone and it's not safe to go to sleep. And it's the same analogy I use when I ask people, well, what are the two things that you complain most about or that your friends or that when you're sitting with your family, they're complaining about. And, you know, we, we tend to love to complain about physical ailments depending on how close your family is, but sleeping and digestion are the two that you never get away from. Everybody is talking about their bowel movements or their lack of bowel movements. They're not being able to go to sleep at night or they're being, you know, they're waking up too early. And the fact is that they're breathing in fight or flight or, or a variation mm. of fight or flight. The opposite of fight and flight is may still be alert, but it's more of a rest and digest. Now, if you've been breathing in fight or flight all day, your body's not going to rest and digest because it's not getting the information or the signals or the instructions that it's time to rest and digest. And we're surprised, you know, why am I not digesting? Why am I not sleeping? But you're not breathing in rest and digest. And your brain and your soul hears that it's time to sleep and it's time to digest food when the breath is aligned with that instruction. So. Again, with sleep during the day, you may not be able to change your life. It may be intense. You may be, have to produce. You may have a window where you're able to make a lot of money. So changing your job and moving out to a cabin in, in Montana may be what you'd like to do, but it, it's not what you can do right now. But what you need to do to be able to sleep at night is that you need to interrupt the stress, ITS, which mm. is that I want you to uh, think about you know, a little line that's going across your computer of like intense day. So you're on 10, it's on intense, is that you have to bring that line down on your computer to reboot. And it may be 30 seconds, but if you do 30 seconds 10 times a day and you just get yourself to do this automatically, is that then when you're able, then when you want to turn the switch off at night, your body will know, well, I might have had an intense day, but there were moments of safety and of mm-hmm. calmness, so I can turn the light off at night. I'm not in a war zone. And rebooting, turning yourself off just a couple times a day is taking that deep diaphragmatic breath and then going back to your stress. And again, I know it's not you know, correct to say go back to your stress. I'm supposed to say... Yeah have less stress. But the fact is that sometimes we don't have that choice. What we can do is take those 30 seconds, rock your hips, inhale, inflate, exhale, squeeze, and relax. Do that three or four times, several times a day. And you will find the metric for how many of those you have to do to be able to sleep Mm. at night. And it may be five times a day. It may be 25 times a day. But if you're only talking 30 seconds, it's worth it. 
It's incredible. And to, to carve out those, those uh, moments in time so that you're building a pattern so that by the time that you're going to sleep at night, you're like, okay, I've already done this X number of times over the, mm-hmm. over the day. I can get, I can sh- make that shift to, you know, that sleep state, which yeah. is so incredibly important. And we'd love to, um, you know, ask you as well, um, in terms of your kind of uh, audacious goal, uh, kind of grand vision, because you touched upon a, you had this amazing journey of, uh, you know, in terms of uh, being able to help family members. You've had influences from your father and, and your parents. And now you have, uh, you know, in the academic kind of world that uh, you're immersed in. And now you've uh, translated this knowledge into a form for people to turn on their own intelligence in terms of uh, breathing and also bring in the, the clinical psychology side as well. What are some of your goals, like your audacious goals in terms of, you know, whether it's each person that have done their breathing IQ or something like that, which, uh, or to each person that have, have shifted to diaphragmic breathing over the course of the day, what would you love to see with inside the world? You know, I, I love that you say audacious goal, and I think you should run and go get that URL if it's not taken already and write the book Audacious Goal because mine is that everyone take the breathing IQ. And again, you don't have to do that with me. You don't have to buy anything to be able to do it other than a measuring tape. And if you live anywhere near your grandmother, there's going to be a measuring tape somewhere. And that everyone take their breathing IQ because the amount of information it gives you is mind-blowing. It's it's more important than your most expensive lab test. And I know I'm going to get heat for that, but mm-hmm. it really is. It gives you information, really important information as to your breathing. Is the movement of my breathing optimal? Am I breathing well? Am I really breathing deep? Am I breathing diaphragmatically? And given you know, what that means as far as your health, again, the way you breathe is, is a marker for your longevity your lung capacity and your lung velocity and the mechanics of your breath, they tell you more about what kind of a life you're going to live, your health and how long you're going to live. So why don't we have the breathing IQ? Why don't we have a simple screening in every single assessment that we take? And every, every fitness instructor, every nurse, every physical therapist, every massage therapist should be doing this with their clients. And every person, just like you and I, should have access to this test. So for me, my audacious goal is that you know everyone know how they're breathing. And again, the test is a functional test that tells you by doing it how you should be, how you should be breathing. And that's mm. why I, I I really love it as a screening because you don't take that test then walk. Well, most screenings, think about it. You go to the doctor, you take a test. You don't know, you know, the, the test tells you nothing about how you should be functioning, right? It's a blood test. It's some machine that takes a number. And then your doctor tells you, oh, you're yes, you're within normal limits. You have nothing to worry about. And you walk out and you don't know anything. You don't know what your vitamin D mm-hmm. is. You don't know what yep. your testosterone is. You don't know what movement has to be changed. With this particular screening, you take the screening and it gives you the exact information on what you have to do to be mm-hmm. able to change it yourself all by yourself. <laughs> so that's my yeah. audacious goal. Yeah, beautiful. Where can people find you, uh, Dr. Belisa? Uh, the Breathing Class or drbelisa.com, hashtag Dr. Belisa. I'm pretty easy to find. 
Elisa, thank you for your leadership, your books, your speaking engagements, and all the happiness oxygen you bring to the world. And a tremendous thank you to all the listeners. As always, this has been your host, John Tuckums. You have made it to the end of the podcast. It's your host, John Tuckums. I want to take this moment to sincerely thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the time you're taking to invest in your life. And if you gain something valuable from this episode and want to give me value somehow, I would tremendously appreciate if you went to Apple Podcasts, iTunes. If you have an Apple product where you listen to this podcast and leave this show a review, you are free to send me a message or email. Contact information is in the description below. Thank you again for listening and thank you for your contributions in helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen.